Good morning. Good to see you all. Just to add my own welcome uh, to you all, especially if you're a visitor. It's lovely to see you. And uh, we have, uh, I mean, normally we have, a, we have a few biscuits after, don't we? We have custard creams and chocolate digestives, but this week we have got some proper cakes, which we'd love you to hang out after and partake of them. Uh, you know, in traditional church, if communion is served, that the priest has to finish the wine after communion. We have the same tradition here, that if the cakes aren't eaten, the leadership have to eat them. So please do uh, finish them up and hang around. An important part for us, uh, one of our values is spending time together eating. So do, and we do like hanging around after church. Uh, I find that's quite a sacred time actually. It's a very important time for us, hanging around after having a cup of tea and uh, enjoy being a family. So please do that. I don't know what kind of week you've had. I'd, I'd, I had an interesting week. I, I was down to speak on how does God speak. So we're doing this 20 question series, but I realized uh, about eight days ago that I'd previously spoken on that. So you can get that. I think it's on YouTube. I think there's already been three viewings. So there is a sermon <laughs> on how does God speak today uh, already uh, that I did. So we changed it up and we thought, what should we speak on? I thought, well, we'll speak on how do I build and strengthen my faith practically. So we're looking at practical questions as well as you know, deeply theological questions, just establishing our values only eight months in. I don't know what kind of week you've had, but I had a week where I found myself going down to London a couple of times, over to Northern Ireland for a potential theological punch-up with some people, uh, and then um, zipping around various other places. And... Um, uh, where in the back of my brain, uh, somewhere on trains and planes and automobiles, I had to write a sermon on how do I strengthen and build my faith. And I just had, about had enough faith to get out of bed this morning, you know. Uh, in fact, this is a cunning ploy. I went yesterday to a thing called the Pageant of Power. And a few people from the church went, and a couple of my mates in Christian Vision for Men, because I work for the Elim Pentecostal churches, my PA and various other people at work thought I was speaking at a Pentecostal conference because it was called the Pageant of Power. But actually, it was a car show. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> it was a car show. So I got a day off by putting in a stealth title in my diary, the Pageant of Power. So that was nice. Uh, we went there and saw all kinds of cars and stuff. So it's a bit of a laugh, isn't it? I'm going to see what else I can get away with at work. It's quite interesting. Uh, so how do I build and strengthen my faith? I was running this question through my mind during the week, and I came to a conclusion, actually, and I don't want to sound too harsh when I say this. I'm aware that you can say things in the sermon. It's a bit of an arrow hit. But it's very easy, I think, for Christians... Uh, for those of us here who would self-describe as a Christian, aware that some people here wouldn't self-describe as a Christian, that's fine. Uh, uh, but for those of you here that do, I think it's very easy for us to self-describe as a Christian, but actually live almost like a Christian atheist. And what I mean by that is, you can... Say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but in what you do and what you believe for, there is a disconnect. In other words, it's in here, but when it comes to what we are living for and praying for, in a dynamic of everyday life, we are not living as if it's here in our hearts. 
as well. So we have a lot of this, but we're not actually experiencing God. And, and a lot of people, I think, are living with a kind of, because I've done this, a kind of niggling disappointment in God too, where you have the head belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Lord raised him from the dead, but actually you're a little bit disappointed because you heard a lot of stuff and you believed a lot of things and actually you haven't seen a lot of that stuff happen. And so you self-describe as a Christian, but day to day, that kind of passion, that zeal, that belief that God can intervene and will intervene and is active and changing things in the world, that's actually started to slip away a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Is that just me who's ever had that? Or have you ever had any of that? Because I have a bit of that. You know, like I said, I said it deliberately. Some mornings, I don't feel like getting out of bed. Particularly when I know the alarm's going off at half past four. I don't feel full of faith at those moments. So I thought, well, let's have a little look at that. And then as I was driving around and travelling around, I started thinking of the different verses in Scripture that therefore challenge us a little bit. Like, for instance, John 14, 12, where... Jesus either helpfully or unhelpfully, depending on your perspective, says, you will do even greater things than I've done. That's a bit frustrating, isn't it? Because he does all these miracles and stuff. And then he says, and you will do even greater things. So if you read commentaries and you know, scholarly books written by people who are much brighter than us, they say things like, "What?" you often read in commentaries, little comments that are really saying, what Jesus meant to say was, what he really meant was, so like for instance, oh, give, all, give everything away to the poor. And so what we do is you read it and we go, yeah, I know, but what Jesus didn't mean that, what he meant was, have the heart for it. It's okay, just have the heart for it. And it's the same when it comes to things like this. You'll do even greater things than I've done. So we read that and we think, oh, what that meant was the spread of the gospel. Because Jesus only went about 25 miles from his house. So, and now we're all over the world. That's what Jesus really meant. Because he, he predicted that we'd have Google Maps and stuff. Like he knew that we'd be able to travel the world and we'd have, you know, travelocity and things. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. I just think he was saying you will do even greater things. Matthew 17, 20. If you have the faith, Jesus said, of a mustard seed. You can look at a mountain and say it will go into, go into the sea and the mountain would do it. I find that a little bit tricky. Because I've, I've, you know, I was one occasion when, I'd, when I was planting a church back in the 90s when I invited loads of people to a barbecue. Loads of people. None of them were Christians. All off this estate where we were living. And loads of people turned up. And just as they turned up, a thundercloud, you know, like you can tell, if you, you know, you only need to be British for a few years and you can tell when it's going to really pour rain, can't you? Have you ever felt that? When you go outside your house, you think, it's really going to rain. Then you pop back in, get an umbrella, and you come out and it goes, like that. You can feel it, can't you? It's like, you feel the atmosphere change. The barbecue is all set up, had me pork sausages on the go. Quality, quality Iceland sausages on the barbecue. <laughs> But if it's only in my early 20s, quality, bit of Coleman's, nice little cheap bread, get it all set up, thunderclouds gathering, and I can feel it. 
I feel it in the air that it's going to really pour rain, that it's going to be a big storm. Do you know what? I was so naive. I've got to be honest with you. Karen will tell you when she gets back from the race of life. I was so, which I hope she's hoping to beat her daughter, even though she's 40,000 years older than her. Anyway, I stood there in front of all the people who turned up so far and I rebuked the storm. Because Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, if you jump into the sea, the mountain will do it. I rebuked the storm in front of the handful of people already there. 30 seconds later, the biggest rainfall that ever hit the UK hit my patio. I just find it a little bit challenging. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We live by faith, not by sight. That's hard for us in the West because we're quite materialistic and we have stuff. We like to only believe in what we can touch and feel and built on our experiences. Our faith levels often built according to our experiences that we've had in the past. Uh, uh, so living by faith and not by sight, I find that particularly challenging as well. Believing for things that don't feel very tangible to you. But it says it in the Bible. Uh, and I have to say that for me, I've tried to navigate some of these questions over time and I have come to some conclusions on it and I want to put it here right at the start although we are a church that believes in the power of God to change lives now and we believe for the miraculous and we can believe for the impossible I do think we need this little word called balance in there as well and I've said this before like we would believe in this church that, that people can be healed and I'm actually looking around the church at the moment as a couple of people here have experienced profound healing or God starting to move in their lives. It's been amazing. Only eight months we've seen people touched powerfully by the presence of God. But I also think if you've got to have a good theology of healing, you need to have one of suffering. I think there's a bit of balance required. If you believe in, in God intervening, sometimes you understand that you've got to walk in the desert a little bit. I think that just comes in maturity. So I don't think we should throw our brains away in what I'm saying as well. I think we believe God for the impossible. I think we're meant to be people full of faith, but there's a balance. And I've, I've said this to you before. I turned up at a conference once and I had man flu. I was speaking and I had man flu. And the men who are here will know that is a near-death thing. That is bad. That is, that is an echelon above anything out there that is yet to be cured. Like, take something like botulism. Man flu is an echelon above. And I have man flu. And I'm sweating and I can barely speak. And I had to speak on the platform. And when I tell you, it was a charismatic Pentecostal type conference. I'm a Pentecostal minister. But, but I think you've got to have balance. I've told you this before. I turned up and I said to the organiser, I'm feeling a bit ill. Oh, you might have to turn the microphone up. Oh, I've got a touch of man flu. Just like that. And they went, no, you haven't. I said, yes, I have. He went, no, you haven't. I went, I have. And he went, no, you I went, I have. I'm really feeling ill. He went, in the name of Jesus, you should declare that you are fully 100% well. I went, I'm not. <laughs> I'm fully ill. They said, but if you say it, you become it. I was, that's just stupid. I just want to be ill. Sometimes you've got to accept you've got a headache. Isn't it? I, otherwise, I think you start to throw your brain away. Or you build disappointment and you start to live a life of denial and you start to live in an alternate reality. And that's really dangerous. And I, 
I just want to say that this is just practical lessons I've learned over the years. We want to be a community that is full of faith and belief. And we'll talk about how we, how we navigate this going forwards. But also I think we want to be a church of reality. Otherwise, you end up living like you're in Narnia. And we're not. We're in Britain. And things happen. And you can get man flu. And sometimes, by God's grace, you can recover from that. As I am living proof. So here's a few questions just to navigate. As ever with this series, we're just trying to put a few things out that you can think through and try and navigate. And so I've just come up with a few things that occurred to me as I've gone through the week. I want to look at what obstructs us from having a community of faith and think about how we can build a community of faith. But the first thing I want to think about is why are we actually in faith in the first place? Why would we be in faith for anything as a church? And I think you need to be a little bit careful here that we stay on the side of being in faith for things that please God and not just please ourselves. This is just a practical pointer for me before we start looking at some uh, more specific scriptures. Are we in faith for things because of the buzz? Because we like to see answered prayers? Or the supernatural? Or are we in faith because we have a passion for Christ and a passion for people and a passionate people would meet him. Like, for instance, I struggle with some of the stuff I see out there, which I think is often about being in faith for effectively self-gain. Now, if God wants to bless you with stuff, I have no problem with that at all. But it feels a little bit weird that sometimes in the West, someone's praying for a hot tub or a white Mercedes when there's people in Africa praying for food who are brothers and sisters. So I, I'm saying these things because we're a new church and as we start to push forward into the things of God and I believe God wants to bless our town and bless all the churches here unless we're playing football against them. I just want us to stay on the right side of pleasing God. Remember I keep putting out there often the Ephesians 4.20 I think it is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We, we should stay on the side of doing things that please God. Uh, in my experience of Speaking to people who say, I've never experienced God answer a prayer very directly. My normal reply is, if you want to see God answer a prayer and build your faith, one of the most effective things you can pray for is to think of a friend who doesn't know Jesus Christ and pray that you have an opportunity to share your faith. And God normally answers that prayer, in my experience, within a matter of days. So is he passionate about people who don't know his son Jesus Christ? God is very passionate that you would know him. And therefore, when we pray prayers for people who don't know Jesus Christ, so passionate is God about that, that he allies our desires with his will, and we do see a connection take place. I have to tell you that for a period of time when I was in banking, this is amazing, God can even use people in the banking world. When I was a salesman in London, flogging things to people that they didn't need and earning a huge amount of money off the back of it, what God later used for church planting, just had that caveat. When I was doing that, as I went up the escalators in the city, I used to say that it was a switch. When I got on the escalators before I had to do a short walk to work at the top in the London Underground, I used to pray the same prayer for a long season. God, please use me today to share my faith with X, Y, Z, my colleagues. Give me some opportunity. And do you know, I used to come up all the time. God, I saw God answer those prayers. 
And then that built my faith, and I'll take a next step. God, please use me to do this, or God, please use me to do that. I feel that God answers prayers when they're allied to his will, but let's, let's keep our desire for faith in this church built around a passion for the gospel, a passion for Jesus Christ, a passion for people to connect with the message, a passion to see transformed lives, and I think God will really answer those prayers. So let's just think about why are we in faith in the first place. So here's a few practical pointers on building faith. The first one is, uh, and I've only got a couple, don't worry, I only normally speak for 90 minutes. You'll be absolutely fine. If the family haven't arrived, I can keep going for four hours. So we'll just stay here. Um, that's quite standard in, in some churches in Africa. Just go and come as you see fit. I'll just keep going. Uh, they hopefully be here by 3.30. Uh, first major point. Kill unbelief. Kill unbelief in your life. I find there's some very intriguing little scenarios here in Scripture. So Mark 5, if you have a Bible with you, there's some very interesting things here to navigate. Now in Mark 5, verse 21 onwards, you'll see the incident where a woman had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, had been under the care of loads of doctors, the condition had got worse, uh, she touches Jesus' cloak, and Jesus has this amazing thing of feeling power come out from him. And, and a healing takes place. But he's actually on his way to do another miracle. So verse uh, 35, oh, we'll start at verse 34. She's healed. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid just believe. A challenging, isn't it? Don't be afraid. Fear the enemy of faith. Don't be afraid. Just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give them something to eat. There's a little interesting couple of details here in, in the midst of this story, this amazing miracle. Firstly, he doesn't take anyone except Peter, James, and John. Secondly, he proclaims there's something here that's different. She's not dead, she's asleep. And they all laugh at him. And it says there, they all laughed at him, and he put them all out. Go away. I mean, he probably, maybe quite falsely, but he, because you can imagine a commotion. This is Middle Eastern culture. I mean, everyone's going crazy with grief, and there's wailing and noise and commotion and pain and grief. 
And in the middle of this, Jesus says, she's not dead. They go, what are you talking about, Jesus? You need to go away, go away. So he moves everyone out of the way. And then he only goes in with the disciples that he took, Peter, James, and John. And then the miracle happens. Interesting, I thought to myself. Interesting how Jesus surrounds himself with people of faith. But removes people who are in doubt or afraid when he goes to perform the miracle. There's other interesting passages that seem to back this up. Uh, this idea that I'm generating here, Matthew 13, uh, Matthew 13, Jesus doesn't do any miracles because of people's lack of faith. Matthew 13, 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And then you've got passages in Acts 2 where it says the community of disciples were filled with awe and wonder and the apostles did many miracles there. Now, adding all this up together, I, I just want to bring a corrective little word here. Often when people have been prayed for who are really ill or sick or in desperate need or really in grief about something or sad or broken inside, there's a teaching that says, if you just have the faith, if you just have the faith, you know, Jesus will do this. Now, that in part might be true, but I think we need to bring a little corrective here and say, I think there's a responsibility in the church to be a community of faith. That's what you see here. Jesus takes with him people of faith. Where there is no faith, nothing happens. In the early church, people were filled with awe, and, and wonders and signs happened. I mean, and not all the time. Sometimes uh, the, the early disciples reached out, like Peter preaches a sermon and sees thousands of converts. Stephen has a go at preaching a sermon in front of opposition and gets stoned to death. Power and weakness, suffering and miracles. So I just want to keep that balance in there. But I think we have a responsibility to kill unbelief as a church. And be a community of faith, awe and excitement. Obviously, in a very British way. You know, the British excitement thing. You know, we went to church on Sunday and it was amazing. Fifteen people were healed and a thousand people became Christians and all being baptised next week. You'd all sort of go, oh, jolly good. So, well, that's super. Wonderful. Or you might do that if you lived in Surrey. It's Derbyshire and you go, great. Wonderful. Let's go. Or you wouldn't do that in an Eastern accent. But I can't do a Derbyshire accent. I've just been here for six years. I understand that there's British understatement, but I do think we have a responsibility to maybe kill cynicism as well as unbelief and build a sense of wonder. That's why testimony is quite important. You know, occasionally at church over the last few months, you've said, if the Lord has been doing something in your life, do come and share it. Because it builds our faith, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, a Christian vision for men, as it started to spread internationally, it was a movement built on the stories of transformed lives. To be honest with you, it wasn't built on our great teaching. It was built on the stories of transformation. So I think we have a responsibility to a community that is, without restraint, very excited about the things that God is doing. Uh, and you know, learn about that. Share the testimonies. Here's a little correction for you. When I, for me, this happened to me. I was at a conference uh, once, 
And, and we'd seen God do this incredible thing where we were ministering. Karen and I, we'd seen loads of people come into Christ and no one really knew about it. And we weren't really telling anyone. And I know there's some other people here who've experienced, you know, and God do some amazing things. But we were being very British. So we weren't really telling anyone. And I'm sitting there having a pork pie at this conference over lunch. And this, this guy comes up behind me, this, this African pastor stands up behind me and he says, I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but the Lord's got a word for you. I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but the Lord's got a word for you. That's humble, isn't it? And he said, the Lord is displeased. Now, they are the last words you want to hear when you've got a mouthful of pork pie, isn't it? <laughs> the Lord is displeased. Now, now I'm starting to think, I don't think I've been sinning, like, massively. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, you know. Don't well, what have I done? What have I done? And then this guy says, he says, I'm not from here. He says, but I, I believe the Lord is showing me that you're in the middle of a work for him. And no one knew me. I was a young guy in my early 20s. And I went, yeah, I am. Yeah, and I'm a bit scared, to be honest with you. This guy's quite an intimidating guy. And he said, you are withholding the stories of transformation. You, you are, these words, you are stealing the glory of God by not sharing the stories of people whose lives are being transformed. And what I really, he said, so share those stories. Point beyond yourself to Jesus Christ, but share the stories of transformation. Share what the Lord is doing with people. And, I, and he just sort of went away. And I lost my appetite. And I realized what I've been doing. What I've been doing was being very restrained and not celebrating my faith. Now, I know I have a grumpy face. I know I don't outwardly look like the most cuddly, happiest person. But I do think I have now a heart for celebrating the good things that God is doing. That's why I can be celebratory in worship. It's why I can do an impression of a windmill sometimes. Not all the time. But sometimes. It's why sometimes I'm happy uh, about being a Christian. And why I get excited about sharing my faith. Why I get excited about telling people about the church. Because I don't want to steal the glory for God. But I also think we need to create a culture where we're enthusiastic, excited about what God's doing. Because then I believe that that pleases the Holy Spirit. And then God starts to move amongst us. Because we're welcoming him here, aren't we? He's welcome here. And, and, and we're giving him honour. I think the Lord likes that. I think he, we like it when we make him famous. I, I don't think that's a silly thing to say. I think the Lord delights it when we, when we honour his name and we tell of the good things that he's doing. And it, the Old Testament is riddled with this. In Deuteronomy and Joshua 4. Why do they say, tell your children... Joshua 4, tell your children what you saw God do. Spread the fame of the Lord. Get excited about it. Now, some of you are looking at me all kind of happy. And some of you are looking at me really miserable about that. So I think we've got a little bit of work to do. <laughs> Let's get excited about the things that God is doing. But understanding that in a balanced way. Kill cynicism. This is what I've learned. When we see God do something or we start to get excited about it, that, that little bit of faith is often followed by a little small voice of doubt. Did God really do that? 
Did God really say that? It's, it's like Eve back in the garden. Did God really say eat the fruit? I mean, the, the, the enemy, and we do have an enemy, always uses doubt and cynicism against us. And I think British humour is laced with this amazing cynicism, isn't it? A sort of dry humour, which is very amusing. But let's not apply that to the things of God. Let's not be a grumbling, complaining community. That's the language of the world, isn't it? Grumbling and complaint. And it steals the joy of the Lord away from us. So let's kill unbelief and be a community filled with awe. Second point, uh, I'm doing to close in a bit. Conditional faith is another one. Conditional faith is this. I will do this for you, God. I will invest my life into telling people about you if you make my neighbour move. If you heal my headache, I promise I'll go to home group. Do you know what I mean? Like bargaining prayers. And I think that's very God-limiting, actually, and not quite on the right lines. So, you know, for instance, Romans 11... Where's my references here? I struggle with my glasses and reading my Bible. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And various other passages like this, which actually tell us one simple truth. God owns everything. He sustains our lives moment by moment. I have to say this. I believe very clearly that whether you know him or not, whether you believe he exists or not, the fact you can even have an opinion is the sheer grace of God. He is sustaining our lives nanosecond by nanosecond, right this very moment. We are incredibly fragile. We are living on a lump of rock, hurtling through space at thousands of miles an hour. The fact that we are protected by an atmosphere, that we have food to eat, and, and sometimes the rain falls, is just a miracle of grace. The fact that we hold together in this shape is weird. We are just a collection of atoms. Oh, we've got a couple of doctors in the church. Please explain to me later why we just don't fly apart. We're just a bunch of atoms. It's weird. We are sustained in our lives moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond. And for all our brightness and intelligence, we still don't quite work out how it all happens. We're still trying to work it out. It's amazing. So why are we bargaining with God? A much better approach to me is, you are God. Your will be done. Your will be done. 
I pray. I live in hope and faith. I believe for things. But your will be done. My life is in your hands. And I have to say this. Amazing how spiritual people get when they're about to die. Very few people don't. Because at that point, and I watch people die, at that moment, in that fragility of that moment, I think you finally realise that actually your life is very fragile and fleeting. If we capture the sense of that in our church, the sheer majesty and the glory and the splendour of God, the fact he sustains us moment by moment, that this life is an incredible gift, that you're precious and loved, and it's this amazing, sensational adventure called life is a gift. I think we'd start to pray different prayers. And I think we'd count the stuff around us as different. Bargaining prayers to me breed the wrong sort of prayers and a, a low level of faith. Pray without condition and submit our lives to Christ. Next thing, God can blow your mind. He can blow your mind. And sometimes it's unexpected. The Bible is riddled with stories of amazing intervention and amazing suffering. And sometimes you pray for people and people still get ill. People don't get healed. You know, I've, I've, I've hinted at it, but I got diagnosed with some kidney thing a couple of years ago that's never got better and I don't know how it's going to pan out at the moment. People prayed for me. People carried much worse stuff. And, and they get prayed for and God doesn't always intervene. But sometimes, he blows your mind. I had a friend. I had one friend. I had a friend whose wife was due to give birth and the medics will correct me later, I can't remember the science, but the placenta had attached itself to some major artery. And so she was going in for a C-section uh, and it was going to be very delicate and there was a danger, you know, that it could go horribly wrong. This was pre-mobile phone days, before you had mobile phones, particularly if you were a pastor, church plant, and you couldn't afford a mobile phone, you know, so it was all payphone time. So I was on standby to get a phone call from the payphone at the hospital to go in and visit. And a phone call came, and it was from my mate Andy. Karen was around at the time. And Andy says, it's not good. Can you come in and pray? They think we're losing her. The baby's very weak, but she's hemorrhaging, and we don't think it's looking very good. Would you come? And he said, and can you bring five pound of change for the, for the payphone? So I've got to keep phoning around. He said, but please get here, please get here, you've got to come. Now, at the time, I had an old Kawasaki, Kawasaki GT550 motorbike that didn't always start. And I, it was pouring me rain, so I got all my gear on. And they were in a specialist hospital miles away, uh, not the normal hospital, I had a chaplaincy pass. So to get all my wet weather gear on, I drove for a fair old trot through the traffic and the rain. And then I found out where they were, the maternity bit or wherever they were operating. 
and I had to keep buzzing the door to be let in so I didn't have a chaplaincy swipe thing. And then as I came in through the door, Andy was standing there and he was putting the phone down. And he said, you've got to come up, you've got to come up. He looked at me a bit and he went, you've got to come up, just come up, come up. And we went running upstairs, on the way up, I'm taking my jacket off, my gloves off, and got my crash helmet and I dumped my stuff. And I get ushered into a room and I've still got my wet weather trousers on, my motorcycle boots, um, and I'm a bit messy, a bit scruffy. And, and Nikki, his wife, is lying on the table and there are some medics around her and they're pushing down on her stomach. And at that moment, a policeman comes running in through the door, carrying two boxes of blood. And a doctor turns to me, or a nurse, my doctor or nurse says, they're the last two boxes of blood and we're out of clotting agents. And the consultant turns to me and says, it's as bad as it can be. And someone else says, are you the priest? Can you do the last rites? Do you pray your prayers over Nikki? And Andy's in bits. He's now crying his eyes out. So I, I thought I went to Spurgeon's College. I was a Baptist minister. I thought, I don't know how to do the last rites. We don't go to learn that as a Baptist. <laughs> so we prayed that she, the Lord would spare her life. And we placed Nikki's uh, life into God's hands. That's how, what we did. Then we got ushered into a little room. And you can imagine the pressure. We sit in this little room next door. Every time someone walked past, we thought they were going to come in to say that she's gone. And then the consultant did come in and he said, he said, it's as bad as it can be. He said, but we, we, she's still hanging in there. Uh, we are out of clotting agents. He said, but we think she's stabilizing, but she's very weak. And then we're very nervous. Ten minutes later, he comes back in and he said, she said that, that she seen things are, are stabilizing. This is amazing. And then Andy looked at me and went, I've just got this really bad feeling she's still going to bleed. So we prayed and, and we prayed that she wouldn't bleed anymore. Consultant comes back in again or some doctor comes in and says, it's amazing, we, we, we're going to move her to St. John's Hospital. Oh, the main hospital in Chelsea. He said, but uh, we just found another bleed. We managed to, to cut off, so that's all fine. We're going to move her. So then she was moved to another hospital and we, we went to Burger King because we were hungry because she was stable now. So we're sitting there in the Burger King. It's getting quite late in the day. And we prayed a prayer in Burger King. We said, please, God, please can we speak to Nikki before, before you know, we have to leave the hospital? We go back to the hospital. And it's about 11 o'clock at night. Well, it's just before midnight. Nikki uh, sits up. She's there on her bed, all rested up. And she lifted up her head like that. And she looked at Andy and she went, oh, I really fancy a cup of tea. I really fancy a cup of tea. And fell back to sleep. It's a real answered prayer. As we're leaving, and Andy will still tell this story to this day, uh, Andy turns to me and he said, I mean, a terrible day, but glorious as well. He said, there's some, one thing I don't understand. I'm just going to tell you what happened. Something I don't understand. I said, what's that? He said, as you walked into the hospital, I just heard you say goodbye on the phone. I saw what you're talking about. He said, I heard you say goodbye and you put and I put the phone down and you walk through the door. I said, What are you talking? That can't be right. I thought he was confused. He must have phoned other people. I said, You must have been phoned other people, you got confused. He went, No, no, I only phoned you at that point. He said, I heard you say goodbye to me physically and then you walk through the door. He said, Somehow God got you there very quick. And she was in minutes of dying. 
And I looked at him and said, you tell me God turned the sun back in the sky. Which is in the Bible. And uh, he said, I don't know. He just burst into tears. And I burst into tears. And then we all went home. And then the next day I phoned him up. And Nicky was doing okay and the baby was strengthened. And I said, is this for real? He said, I just don't know. I'm just going to park it in, you know, the... Uh, yeah, what's that probe? The twilight zone. We'll just keep that in the twilight zone. Now, to this day, I don't know what that's all about. But I can't steal the glory from God, can I? I've got to be true to my... It don't matter if I look silly, does it? Because I want to tell you that sometimes I pray for people and they've not made it. And sometimes I pray for people and God does extraordinary things. But I know this, and this is my final point. I'm prepared to look very stupid... I'm prepared to look stupid for Jesus. I'm prepared for people to sit today and think he's mad. Because I'd rather stay on the side of faith and a hope and expectation because I've seen what the other way does. It's the enemy of faith. So can we be a community of people that believe God for the big stuff, but stay in balance too? Understand that it don't always work out well, but we see through a glass darkly. You know, the real life is yet to come. The kingdom is now, but it is not yet. And there is suffering, but there is also hope. There is a promise of better things. And sometimes in this life now, God can do the most extraordinary things. And I'm up for both. But in my language, I have the language of hope and the language of joy. And I'll pray prayers of expectation. And I'll cry with people and put my arm around people when it's not working out. And when it does work out, we'll celebrate, right, as a church. So let's keep that sense of hope and joy deeply within us. And let's start by taking small steps of faith. Pray for your neighbour, pray for your friends. And as God answers those prayers, pray for a little bit more, pray for a little bit more, step out a little bit more. And finally, we'll look back one day and say, wow, our faith has really grown as a church. This is a God of the most extraordinary things.